Welcome to Respect Life Radio. My name is Deacon Jeff Bennett, and our special guest today is Olivia Enos, who's the political policy analyst for Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation. And today we're going to be talking about China and its terrible human rights violations. But Olivia, I know listening to one of your uh, panel discussions, you said you don't like to call it human rights violations, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm not opposed to uh, calling it a human rights crisis, but I think sometimes when we call it a human rights crisis, the fundamental assumption is that it's sort of relegated to only those areas of the State Department or other aspects of the U.S. government that deal with human rights challenges. And I think the reality is, is that this is a much broader threat to not only the human rights of those in Xinjiang, um, but also human rights of people beyond the border, and also threatens the national security interests of the U.S. and countries all over the globe, because China is actually exporting the forms of surveillance technology that it's using, uh, not only for it to spy on other countries, but for other countries to be able to spy on their citizens as well. Yeah, so besides spying on people, religious you know, squashing religious liberty, slave labor, imprisonment, surveillance, forced abortions, contraception. Not a bad place to live, right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think this is really a concerning point in Chinese history. I think what we're seeing is in many ways, it looks like the cultural revolution is in fact repeating itself. Um, I mean, what we are seeing in terms of the specific treatment of the Uyghurs um, in Xinjiang is really reminiscent of even like the Lao Gai, um, which were the political re-education facilities that they had during the Cultural Revolution. Um, And I think that beyond the Uyghurs, the level to which the Chinese Communist Party is targeting people of faith is, is not unprecedented, but it's, it's rising to the level of, of the Cultural Revolution and the types of persecution that believers endured during that time. Well, and we've had so many, you know, examples of, you know, how dangerous and communism is that we to, to imagine that there's this big of a, a country who still thinks somehow they're gonna they're gonna make this work, and they do it at the expense of their own people. Yeah, we hosted um, last week, as you referenced, an event on the Xinjiang crisis, and Ambassador Brownback, um, who is the ambassador at large for international religious freedom, really poignantly noted that the Chinese Communist Party is targeting souls. It's targeting people's various belief systems that it believes may not be able to, you know, will get in the way of the Chinese Communist Party achieving its its ends. But the reality is, is that no government, when it has sought to overtake souls, has ever won in the long term. This is something that Ambassador Brownback pointed out. Going after people of, you know, various faiths and backgrounds is really not uh, in the Chinese government's interest to do so, but it is absolutely targeting people, whether they're Christian or Muslim or Falun Gong or Tibetan Buddhist, um, everyone of of any sort of faith background is being targeted right now. Well, I think for people just to get a, a picture of of what's going on, I think talking about the Uyghurs, which is really a, a Muslim community within China, right? That's right. I mean, let's let's talk about 
what kind of oppression that they're going through as a people just because they want to live their faith out. Yeah, so the Uyghur Muslims have really endured long suffering. Um, they have been targeted by the Chinese government even since during the Cultural Revolution, maybe even before then. But over the last several years, they have really been cracked down on even further. Some of the most onerous regulations um, included things like having to submit to DNA testing, um, biometric submissions, etc., um, being forced to have members of the Chinese Communist Party living in their homes uh, but to monitor them. And now, of course, we're seeing that between 800,000 to 1.3 million, possibly even 3 million people, are now being sent to these political re-education facilities where not only are they forced to learn Mandarin, not only are they forced to um, in, engage in self-criticism sessions or learn the Chinese Communist Party's core tenets, but they are in some cases being forced to labor, uh, enduring torture, and in some cases, some people have even died while being held in these political re-education facilities. What is taking place is truly breathtaking and terrifying. Well, this is, this is, these are concentration camps. I mean, they, they, they can call it whatever they want, right? But a re-education facility where you're torturing and, and people are dying because of that is, is anything but an education facility. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that it's, you know, quite at, like, the Auschwitz-Birkenau right, level. Right, right, not You at don't that point, have, like, the still, extermination yeah. element, but you do have this high concentration of people essentially being collectivized and sent off to these facilities in a totally inhumane way. And, in fact, at our event, we had um, a German researcher, Adrian Zenz, there, who actually had um, first-hand... Um, drawings and depictions of what these facilities look like. And it was, for example, a classroom where there were bars that separated the teacher from the students and kept the students in. That's not your average school. And I, I don't care, like you said, what the Chinese government says. This is not just a vocational training center. This is not just a school. This is a place where people are being brainwashed and in some cases tortured, and we should be very concerned about it. Well, and I think, you know, you mentioned, and we've mentioned it a couple times, your your panel discussion. I think, you know, if people go to uh, www.heritage.org, they can find that on there, right? On your webpage? That's right. Yep. They can find both the paper and the event. Because I, I, I looked at it, and when I saw the, the pictures, it, it reminded me, it was like animals in a zoo. And that's mm -hmm. the way the people were treated. I mean, with the cages yeah. in a classroom, the teacher standing outside the cage with a blackboard behind the teacher with a guard out front of the door. Yeah, utterly dehumanizing the treatment there is is terrible. And I would say that, you know, what is taking place in Xinjiang today certainly ranks among the top worst crises that are facing individuals around the globe. And we have a lot of really awful things going on. Um, you know, the humanitarian crisis in Venezuela, um, the mass starvation in Yemen, um, the civil war in Syria, uh, individuals inside of political prison camps in North Korea. I mean, the world is filled with horrors of people being abused by their governments, but truly the treatment and the 
mass collectivization and the speed at which this has taken place should be garnering not only international attention and condemnation, but swift action to address these severe challenges. So, you know, was it 30 years ago we had Tiananmen Square, right? Has, has, yeah. has anything changed for the good in China? I mean, it, it, you know, everything you read, you know, they, they discount everything or try to twist things around, but it doesn't seem like things have gotten better. Yeah, well, I mean, no one can deny that China has lifted um, millions of people out of poverty, um, and certainly there has been an economic transformation and, uh, you know, a bit of an openness when it comes to its economy. But uh, the fundamental assumption that a more open economy in China would lead to the restoration of fundamental basic human rights proved to be a faulty one. And so I think, you know, there are a lot of things that are going on, especially over the last five years while Xi Jinping has been in power, has really been China backsliding and moving back to a lot of the traditional um, types of oppression that we did see during the Cultural Revolution. And so I think that it is definitely a moment worthy of reflection that we are 30 years on from Tiananmen Square and still the average Chinese person cannot enjoy the basic um, fundamental God-given rights that everyone on earth was born with. Yeah, I mean, there's no dignity of the human person. It's just a cog in the machine and, you know, we treat cogs whatever way we want because we'll just put another one in there. And, oh, by the way, we'll get free labor so we can make things much cheaper and, and you know, outdo our uh, competition. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's definitely challenging. Well, and, you know, uh, uh, Ambassador Brownback mentioned that when he was a senator, he actually thought that, you know, through working with them and through work, helping the economy, things would change. And he admitted in that panel discussion that, you know, he was wrong, that they, they haven't changed. Yeah, I mean, I think there was a lot of hope that the economic liberalization would deliver on those rights, and we just have not seen that to be the case. And, you know, if anything, I think that China is, is a real cautionary tale for how we consider um, ways that we promote freedom, ways that we promote human rights in other countries. That fundamental assumption that economic liberalization will automatically result in restoration of human rights is, is not right. And so we have to go back and think critically about what strategies are best to really ensure that, you know, governments are in fact there to protect the rights of their people, um, not to grant rights, not to take rights away, but to preserve them and to promote them. And so I think that's why we should be wary of authoritarianism and consider ways in which um, if the U.S. government is to get involved in these issues, they can create greater space for individual citizens inside those countries to exercise their fundamental rights. Because in the end, it's going to have to be people within the countries that rise up against this. But what is it that we can do as as a nation, or at least politically, that that can create that space for the people to do something? Because at some level, we hear a lot of people talking, but I don't know what are the things that we've done to help the people in China. 
Mm, yeah, that's a really great question and one worthy of deep thought. Um, the paper, when it thinks specifically about Xinjiang, but I've also written on Tibet and um, some of the other various human rights challenges inside of China, would be to actually go after those Chinese officials who we know are directly responsible for oppressing um their people. And so in the Xinjiang case and also in the case of Tibet, we know that a Chinese official, Chen Guangguo, was actually responsible for architecting the very severe um, system of surveillance and of the mass uh, police force that is now deployed in both regions. Um, and we know that he's responsible for what's going on there. And so at a bare minimum, he should be sanctioned under Global Magnitsky, which allows the U.S. Treasury to place individuals on the specially designated nationals list and freeze their assets and restrict their travel for the future because they committed severe human rights violations. And other Chinese officials should be targeted as well. But I think also in the Xinjiang case, we should consider going after businesses who are exporting dual-use technologies to uh, Chinese uh, SOEs who are responsible for establishing a lot of these um, surveillance systems. And we should also consider appointing a special coordinator for Xinjiang in order to uh, spearhead these initiatives to hold Chinese uh, government officials and entities accountable. So from your, from your perspective, why haven't we done those things? So I think there are perhaps a couple of different reasons. I think there is this misnomer in um, American diplomacy that if you raise human rights issues, you won't be able to make forward progress and movement on other priorities. And for this administration, for better or for worse, um, trade negotiations have taken center stage in their uh, dealings with China. And Heritage is very outspoken that we, we do not support the tariffs being placed on China, um, but the administration has placed that as, as a top priority. And I think it's a flawed assumption to think that China would walk away from the table simply because we're going to raise the human rights issues. And I think also it's very telling because, um, you know, we are many months now into the administration, years into the administration, and there's no head of the East Asia Pacific Bureau at State Department, and they would traditionally be in charge of coordinating a lot of these efforts. So I think that there are some bureaucratic challenges that have certainly impeded progress uh, in this regard, but I think that it's time for the U.S. to think of Xinjiang not as a peripheral issue, not merely as a human rights issue, and I, I, I don't mean to denigrate in any way the, the importance of the human rights issue, but I think sure. for the purposes of our diplomats in Washington, they primarily need a national security-based objective in order to take action. And I think Xinjiang is this perfect storm where you have both human rights issues and national security issues intertwined, and we should make that case as strongly as we can as members of civil society. So what can people, you know, people who are listening, you know, what can they do? They can contact their elected officials, I'm sure. But how, how can they better understand what's going on there? What are some resources you would recommend for them to kind of really get educated on what the heck is happening over there? Yes. So um, I would definitely recommend reading some of the reports from Human Rights Watch. There was a phenomenal report where they reverse engineered the surveillance technology or the application that the Chinese government was using to essentially round up 
the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. It's a terrifying report, but well worth the read to be educated and understand the full extent to which the Chinese government is surveilling its citizens. Um, I think that it's also definitely worth um, thinking about the ways that they can be more active or if, you know, they're in their communities or um, if you're religious in your church communities or your other faith communities, um, praying for the people who are there, um, I think is a, is a really valuable way, uh, you know, to contribute as well. But I think that, you know, a lot of people are not aware of what's going on in Xinjiang. A lot of people are not aware of the persecution of Christians and Muslims and Buddhists and Falun Gong and people of all faiths in China, I think reading about that and understanding the extent to which people are persecuted can be really good because, um, you know, I think having communities that are aware of oppression and who can sort of mourn with those who mourn and um, celebrate with those who are celebrating, I think is definitely worth developing that empathy. Well, I mean, people do have to educate themselves. Otherwise, they don't know. Because, you know, I, I've talked to people who think, you know, we all know about, you know, China's one-child policy. And then, you know, it came out, wow, you know, now they're allowing people to have two. Wow, things must be getting better. <laughs> but you, you you know what I mean? It's just on the yeah. surface, they'll read a headline and think, oh, we're moving in the right direction. But in reality, right. you have to ask permission to even have a second child, right? I mean, it's not like everybody can do whatever they want. Yeah, that's absolutely right. We wrote a uh, paper here at Heritage called The Economic and Humanitarian Case for Rescinding the Two-Child Policy in China, and it looked at exactly that because the government has no business making what are personal family decisions for individuals inside of China. And while it can be really um, deceiving to see, oh, now they can have two children, the reality is that the government is still inserting themselves in what should be a personal family decision. And, yeah, the, there's a lot of concerning trends like this. I mean, China, uh, the Chinese government inserts themselves in personal decisions about religion, personal decisions about family, and they've made it even so that uh, the family unit itself, you know, often is snitching on each other. They're breaking down the most fundamental building blocks of community and society. It's incredibly, incredibly concerning. Yeah, I mean, there's no trust, right? I mean, you don't yeah. know who to trust. You don't know, you know, you mentioned it just a second ago, whether it's a family member or they're putting somebody from the government to live with you. You yeah. can't trust anybody. And, you know, one of the things that that came out that I thought was really interesting in that panel discussion, and again, I highly recommend people listen to that, was, you know, they did some work in Africa, and they're actually, like, spying on Africa right? On doing surveillance. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in the panel, I gave two examples. Uh, one was that uh, Chinese state-owned enterprise won the contract to build the African Union headquarters. And when they did so, they actually embedded microphones into the walls of the headquarters. And then they put into the um, overall operating system um, a mechanism that enabled them to receive nightly downloads from the servers there from, I believe it was 2013 to 2017. And um, so it's very concerning because they were using it for their own spying purposes. But then beyond that, they are also equipping governments like the government in Zimbabwe where they, uh, a couple of Chinese state-owned enterprises supplied the surveillance technology to the Zimbabwean government, and the Zimbabwean government was using it to spy on their people. But beyond the government spying on their people without them knowing about it, they were actually sending the 
personal private data of Zimbabwean citizens back to the Chinese state-owned enterprises so that they could so-called refine their technology on darker faces. Uh, not my words. This was yeah, from yeah, a no, report yeah, yeah. that I read. Um, but really just terrifying um, and, and just a total invasion of privacy in a, in a shocking, shocking way. I mean, this is like a spy novel. Right. I mean, if somebody wrote this, you'd be like, this is hey, you got to put this in the in the fiction category. The word Orwellian has been used many times to describe what's going on there. And I think it's an accurate one. Well, and, and to, to think all this is going on under our nose, we live in a world, you know, where we have these freedoms, but we have people who want the government to take over more and more control of us because they think they're smarter than we are. I mean, it's amazing how we can see things in history and then currently and still somehow think it's good to give government that kind of power and control because we're not smart enough to run our own communities or families. Mm. Yeah. No, it's it's we should always be wary of the extent to which the government is getting involved in our personal lives and we should really guard our liberty, you know, as much as we possibly can. And the other thing, you know, you had mentioned, you know, we talked about educating, contacting legislators and that type of thing. You know, boycotting companies that do business over there is another avenue that everybody's open to. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, it's been really interesting uh, to see, but even just the suggestion that the U.S. government might, um, you know, in some way sanction or place on the entities list um, individual businesses that are responsible for exporting the surveillance technology has already gotten American companies to withdraw Good. these exports to China. So Thermo Fisher would be a great example of this. Well, that's great. I mean, because at some point, unless there's a penalty, they're not going to change. And you got people being treated like not even as well as animals in some cases. And mm. these are people with human dignity like we all have. And it's it's just yeah. a shame to hear this kind of stuff go on and on and on. And, really you know, we just heard recently, you know, the, all the, with, with all the states, uh, you know, protecting children in the womb, you hear Disney say, well, we're, we're going to maybe have to pull out of Georgia when they films, when they do films in China. We li we live in a in a world where you know don't you know we can say whatever we want talk out of both sides of our mouths but at some point we need to stand up for the Chinese people because again they have the same inherent dignity that we've been given no different absolutely yeah so what got you really started into this I know we only have a couple minutes to go but you have such a passion for for you know the underdog kind of stuff sort of say, for the people in in the Asian countries. What, what got you interested in that? Yeah, so in my junior year of college, I took this wonderful class on the negative impacts of communism worldwide. And I had to read this book called The Black Book of Communism. And it um, it looked at basically communism's impact all across the globe and specifically gave conservative estimates on the number of people who have died as a consequence of communism and also the typical um, activities that governments will carry out to uh, oppress their people. And Asia featured really prominently China, Laos, Cambodia, North Korea. Um, and it got me really interested um, because I 
became very surprised when I started seeing things that had been happening historically taking place in the modern day. Um, I think China specifically, but also North Korea, I mean, there's between 80,000 to 120,000 individuals in political prison camps there today. These truly are like the Soviet gulags, like concentration camps. Uh, People go there and and they generally die. Um, And uh, to me, it was shocking that I could make it to junior year of college and to not have realized that this was going on. And I felt really called to work on these issues. And so I've been at Heritage now for about six and a half years doing this type of work and absolutely love it. Um, But it would be great the day that I didn't have a job anymore because it would mean that, you know, people were enjoying freedom and liberty and that governments were rightly ordered. Um, But we are not there today, unfortunately. No, and I don't think we'll be there tomorrow. It would be nice. It's a good thing. As you mentioned earlier, prayer is the best thing we can do because... They all, everybody needs it. But my guess is there's a lot of people listening to our conversation that have never even heard about the Black Book or yeah. have an idea what's going on. Is that something somebody could even pick up on Amazon just to yeah, really kind I, of find the playbook? <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, the Black Book of Communism is available on Amazon. It is a little bit pricey, and it is really long, um, but it is well <laughs> worth your time to read it um, because it is really – very educational, but if if the Black Book of Communism is too academic for folks, there are also some really great books to read to better understand um, China and how it works, and also um, to understand the stories of like North Koreans, for example. So I'll just I'll just list off two. One, yeah, um, China's Search for Security by Andrew Nathan and Andrew Scobell is phenomenal for understanding how China thinks about its foreign policy and how it relates to these tricky issues, including Xinjiang and Tibet and otherwise. So I highly recommend that. That's China's Search for Security, and then. Um, If they are interested in hearing the individual stories of somebody who has survived um, a political prison camp inside of North Korea, um, there's a gentleman named Kang Chou-wan, and he wrote a book called Aquariums of Pyongyang, and it's all about the time that he spent from age 9 to 19 inside of a political prison camp inside of North Korea. And Thankfully, um, by God's mercy, he survived, uh, but the other members of his family, for the most part, did not. And that is definitely true for many people in not just North Korea, but China, um, Cambodia, of course, with the Khmer Rouge, um, many, many different places around the globe, not just in Asia. Well, it's, it's fascinating, and I appreciate those. And so we have just less than a minute, but I, you know, how can people follow what you're doing? What's the best yeah. way for them to check follow all the good things you're doing out there. So I, if you look up Olivia Enos on heritage.org, um, that's a great place to find me. I also have uh, a column at Forbes, um, and so you can look me up there. I, I do write a lot on Xinjiang and North Korea, Cambodia, and Burma. And then um, you can follow me on Twitter at Olivia Enos. Well, thanks, Olivia. I appreciate it. <laughs> 